Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. Today we hear from Mick Power, Logistics Coordinator at United Workers Union, about the successful strike action taken by Country Road warehouse workers for wage parity and job security earlier this month. We follow with a look at the Star of the South Wind Farm Project, which is endorsed by both the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, and the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. One of the steps for this ambitious renewable energy project fell into place recently when the Senate passed the enabling legislation to allow the building of wind farms in federal government-controlled waters. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Last week on day 12 of their strike, United Workers' Union members at Country Road Group voted to return to work after securing an agreement that includes an increased pay rise, secure jobs and recognition for their chosen union. Rosie Isaac spoke to Mick Power, Logistics Coordinator at United Workers' Union, about the dispute. So uh, I just wanted to begin, Mick, with workers from Country Road Group's Truganina Warehouse went on strike for two weeks and that began on November 11th. Could you tell us about the action and why the strike was called in the first place? Yeah, sure thing. So um, the workers at the Country Road Warehouse, this is their national DC. So all of the David Jones Country Road politics, witchery, Mimco, Trenary, if you bought any of that from a shop or online, these are the workers who picked it and packed it and got it to your door during the, the lockdowns. And they were working really, really hard when a lot of people were at home. And it was quite a dangerous environment. A lot of, a lot of warehouse workers got COVID at work. And yet their wages were nowhere near what other warehouse workers make, which is important because most warehouse workers in Melbourne's West are making north of $30 an hour and they happen to be mostly men. And the workers at this warehouse were making a dollar above minimum wage, give or take, and they happen to be mostly women and a lot of migrant women. Mm. So they joined our union. They started to negotiate for a living wage and for union recognition and justice. And unfortunately, they didn't get any of that until they went on strike for it. So they went on strike for it. Could you... Tell us a bit about what that action looked like. So they were on strike for two weeks, but I believe there are also actions at Melbourne Fashion Week um, and outside some of the country road stores as well. Yeah, that's right. So um, the workers at the warehouse, you know, took indefinite strike action and stopped working um, and, you know, had a strike protest all around the site as they normally do. Last week was Fashion Week and that was the most important week of the strike. 
And uh, so the workers were also going to great lengths to make sure that customers and the public knew what their fight was about and supported them. And it was great to hear that the campaign um, was successful in terms of securing a new agreement for this group of workers. So could you tell us about um, the win and what was secured in the new agreement? Yeah, so um, the members voted to accept an in-principle agreement. We're still hammering out the details, but it has a total of 13.3% wage increases over three and a half years. It has 20 new permanent jobs. Um, and union members are entitled to submit a list of long-term casuals to be considered for those jobs. Um, a really big one was site rates. So whether they're whether the workers are directly employed by Country Road or whether they're labour hire, same site, same rights under mm. this agreement. Um, and then, so the workers beat Anthony Albanese to his announcement by a couple of days, which is nice. <laughs> um, and then the most a really important one was union rights. So for a long time, the company had been willing to recognise the United Workers Union delegates, but all of the union rights that they had previously enjoyed, like paid time meetings, delegate training, notice boards, inductions, all of those had disappeared as soon as they chose our union. And so what the workers got is uh, paid delegate training, um, a union notice board, finally, and um, the right to be introduced to new workers. And, and say, I'm a union delegate, this is a union site. I did want to touch a bit more on the gender um, question and dimension of this action because you did mention that the striking workers were predominantly women um, and they were fighting in part for this kind of, you know, closing this pay gap um, with men working equivalent warehouse jobs. Uh, and I was also reading that there were reports that some of the workers were threatened with dismissal um, for calling out something like this pay gap. So could you just talk a bit about that gendered nature of the dispute? Yeah, so generally speaking, warehousing is roughly 70, 30 blokes, right, doing the work. And um, retail warehousing in general, and this warehouse specifically, had an unusually high number of women. So at Country Road, it's probably 80, 20 women, men, women to men. That's not the case for the management team. So the site management team, in particular, and the warehousing management team further up the chain was almost all men. And so what you had is, a, you know, a group of women who were trying to get their wages up to the rest of the industry, which is mostly men, and close the gender pay gap. And you had a management team that was mostly men um, fighting quite hard to try and prevent that from happening. Um, there was a lot of really problematic conduct, a lot of intimidation, a lot of bullying. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into it now. That the strike is done, the agreement is reached. Um, we're not here to disparage the company now that we've reached an understanding. Um, but yes, that was very much real and, and, and fairly widespread. The truth is, most most strikes never get to the strike part, right? Mm. Because right before the workers go on strike, everyone realizes that this is going to happen, and it's actually kind of crazy to force workers to do this. And let's be adults. I think part of the reason this one went all the way is because most of the workforce are women. Most of them were probably older women. A lot of them, I mean, a lot of them were migrant women, like Filipina, Timorese, Chinese, South Asian. And I think there had been a culture at that work site for a very long time 
where what the boss said goes and, and, and you know, they had a good relationship with the workers as long as you kept your mouth shut and did what you were told. And so I think part of the reason this one came to it all the way to a strike is because I don't reckon they thought these workers had it in them. Like everybody underestimated these workers again and, and again and again, you know, because they're not mouthy warehouse blokes. Do you know what I mean? But mm. that doesn't mean that they're not strong. It doesn't mean that they're weak. It doesn't mean they're not going to stand up for each other. And, you know, they, they basically proved everybody wrong by going on strike for 12 days and winning. Broadly, the campaign that they were running also pointed out, you know, some of the hypocrisy around um, country road groups' claims to ethical practices, and that was all part of Melbourne Fashion Week, week which had a focus on ethical and sustainable uh, fashion and companies. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about why it is that workers' rights, um, pay and conditions are so often overlooked when we're thinking about kind of this idea of ethical branding or sustainable branding? And why is it so crucial to hold companies to account on this front? Yeah, well, the short answer is I don't know why it's such a big problem, but it is a really big problem. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of companies out there, especially retail companies who are geared towards a middle class, you know, maybe wealthier suburb market and these companies are desperate to show that they are so green like specifically green and sustainable and Mm. you know they want to I mean L'Oreal during fashion week while they had workers on strike had an executive speaking on a panel about how to fix greenwashing and you know they're they're doing that while their workers are on strike talking up green credentials I used to work in the environment movement um I, I you know, environmental justice and climate justice is very close to my heart. I don't understand how a company can say we want to save the planet, but we're willing to screw workers on the way. But what I'll say is that a lot of a lot of companies are trying that on. And you know, I, I want to I want to give a shout out. A lot of people in the environment movement were not having any of it during this. So, Environment Victoria and Friends of the Earth, in particular, made some pretty quick and pretty clear public statements that. The environment movement is not about mistreating workers or forcing your workers out on strike. And, um, yeah, kudos to them. We did more of that. It is so much about branding and framing and the, the audience or the uh, market that the companies think that they're kind of targeting towards while, um, yeah, paying their workers, uh, you know, wages where they wouldn't even be able to afford to buy the products that they're kind of working and warehousing and picking and packing. So it's it's pretty, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's just it, it's hard to understand what it's actually like. But you know, if you work in a country road, chances are you're pulling in nine hundred dollars a week before tax. Now, if you're one of several wage earners in a household, or if you've got money or, or, or wealth tucked away, that's okay. But you know, a lot of the people working in this warehouse are parents. A lot of them are single mothers. A lot of them are the only source of income in the family. And when you take 900 bucks, knock off the tax and then spread it across all of your dependents, like there are some people who go on strike because they want better wages and there are some people who go on strike because they need better wages and country road workers need better wages. Mm. So I'm very proud. This year, like the reality of this year of the pandemic is that most blue collar workers have been working twice as hard in much riskier situations. And most of these companies, especially big retail companies, They closed the shops, they didn't pay the retail workers. In some cases, they didn't pay their rent. They've made a killing out of the pandemic. But a lot of the workers who actually are, you know, essential workers 
have been busting their ass and just really struggling to make ends meet. So I'm very proud that there's been a lot of workers going on strike this year and there's going to be more. I think people need to understand why. Like workers are workers are at breaking point in a lot of cases. And unfortunately, Australia took a pay cut this year. So the average wages of Australian workers was below inflation, which in a year like this is completely ridiculous, to be honest. I'm very proud that inflation's at 3%. The country road workers are some of the only workers in Australia who broke through that 3% wage barrier. Um, and they wouldn't have done that without going on strike. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. It has been made clear recently that the federal government has been happy to outsource the analysis of employment impacts of the coalition's net zero plan, bypassing CSIRO and giving the contract to a global consultancy giant, McKinsey, who employed seven people to work out the federal government's now familiar talking points. Australia's gross emissions falling around 30% by 2050, with another 15% in reductions coming through unknown technology developments and cheap emissions offset accounting for the rest. If this wasn't so serious, it would be laughable, said Climate Council senior researcher Tim Baxter, who analysed the modelling. It assumes a heroic performance from the federal government's pet technologies without interrogating a single one of these wild assumptions. It downplays the potential of all other alternatives at every opportunity. Interestingly enough, just as this clangour entered the political playing field, the Senate finally passed legislation allowing offshore wind farm projects to advance in federally controlled waters off Australia. We listened into a talk auspiced by Friends of the Earth given by Erin Colham, Chief Development Officer of the Star of the South Offshore Wind Project for details of the project, including some thoughts on the development of local regional jobs. Star of the South, there's a lot of people joining us from Gunai Kurnai land, which uh, is where we're proposing to build this project off the coast of Gippsland, um, near towns like Port Albert and Yarram, uh, Woodside Beach, McLaughlin's Beach. So what is an offshore wind farm? I mean, what are we trying to do here? It really is a game-changing technology, a large project up to 2.2 gigawatts of electricity. And it's probably one of the biggest renewable energy projects proposed at all in Australia. And some would say, why so big? Well, we have a big task coming up, I think, where a lot of our energy at the moment, um, let's say, you know, when I first started in this project, around 75% of our energy is coming from coal-fired power stations. Now, we know they're closing down. We know that the governments have um, set targets for renewable energy and their emissions reduction, and and the owners of those facilities are needing to close them down because they are reaching the end of their lives, both technically and economically. So when those things happen, we need a lot of big renewables to replace them. So as we look at our options, we've got, as we sort of mentioned, onshore wind, onshore solar, Um, That's been going quite well. There's a really good story around how we've been able to build a lot of renewables into our system and get those emissions reductions that we've seen. But we're going to need a lot more um, given the percentages that we still need to replace. And one of the challenges we have with more renewable forms of energy is that um, it is what we call intermittent. So 
Uh, you know, when it's not sunny, it's it's we're not able to take advantage of the solar resources. We do have battery systems and other storage like pumped hydro, which can help. We also need to look at what is the mix of technologies. So, for example, if I look at offshore wind off the coast of Gippsland in Bass Strait, it is at its windiest towards the end of the day, and that's when the sun starts to come down. So as we start to see one form of renewable power start to fade away a little bit, we need to have other ones that are coming in. The other benefit of offshore wind is that the turbines out at sea can be very, very large. So it's something that can be built at scale. Uh, And just to give an example, the spin of one offshore wind turbine, the latest technology that they're building, can power a home for a full day, just one spin. Now, we're proposing to build 200 of these turbines out at sea and have them spinning consistently. So it gives you a good idea of what it can do to help create energy security and reliability, but also helping to keep the power prices down because, uh, as we know, when there's more supply, that helps to keep the wholesale prices down for people. The other interesting thing with offshore wind, uh, it is seemingly uh, better accepted because there is less of an impact from having to build uh, many onshore elements with lots of transmission lines connecting in. Uh, we're certainly going to need that technology, but the offshore wind can complement it and, and do it at scale, as I said, with more turbines that are larger, uh, given they're less conflicting and having um, less impact on the community and, and some of the farmers uh, in our regions. As I talked about the diversity, so having a mix of technologies that can help secure our energy system. And this is something that we've been looking at really closely. We've been doing lots of weather studies. So going back over years and years to understand what it is that offshore wind can do. And we actually found that the offshore wind, again, is at its strongest on very hot days. So when it's over 35 degrees and the electricity system is under a bit of pressure, um, that's where we see the really strong offshore wind that can help prevent the blackouts that can come from that point in time, um, especially when the coal generators are working hard to keep the lights on, as they say. Um, But also when we did our studies, we actually compared the offshore wind output from a large offshore wind farm like ours to uh, a coal-fired power station. And in this example, I'll use the Yalorn power station in Gippsland, uh, which is scheduled to close in 2028. And the offshore wind is, uh, you know, during those periods of time, 85% the same capacity um, as one of those coal-fired power stations. So I did have someone say to us, we're like a power station out at sea, um, just given the level of electricity that can be generated um, during particularly those peak times for electricity. The other reason why this technology is so important is When you look at Gippsland, and I have heard the story of many, many Gippslanders and the pride that comes with generating electricity, uh, but everybody knowing there's general recognition that this industry and the way we're generating power is not going to be there forever. There are not new companies planning to build new coal-fired power stations. So the community is looking to people like us. They're looking to governments to say, well, what's the plan? What's the plan for our region? And I have to share a few stories. I um, We were doing uh, what we call focus group research where we uh, do some random sort of um, conversations and phone surveys with people out in the region to help us understand how people are thinking and feeling um, but also how they want to be communicated with, what issues are important to them as we develop a project like ours. And some of the people in this group had never heard of Star of the South. This was the first time. They sort of heard something about turbines in the ocean 
Um, but when the person talked to them about what this um, project involved, they just, it was like a light bulb moment. And, and one of them, a lady from Terrelgan actually said, you know, the quote sticks with me. She just said the pride and the self, self-respect that would come with a project like that in Gippsland would just have a tremendous impact. Um, it would encourage people to stay perhaps in education and it would show them that there might be jobs available in their region. Uh, a week ago, last Monday, I was in Yarram addressing a crowd of around 30 people where I told a story uh, that I'd first heard when I worked on this project. And it was the first time in over 100 years that Yarram didn't have enough people to field a cricket team because people go to school, they turn 18 and they have to move to the city because they don't see the opportunities. Um, it was wonderful at that event to have a young person in our team by the name of Stella. Now, Stella joined us earlier this year. She's a Yarram local. She's, she's a young girl in her early 20s, but the same thing. She moved away. She moved to the city because she couldn't see a job opportunity. And now we're delighted that she's got a full-time job working with Star of the South and she's been able to move back home with her, her partner and buy a house in Yarram and that's where they're going to spend their time, um, the local footy club, the netball club. So it's not just about providing a job that someone can go to work and, and collect a living and come back. It's actually keeping communities together, keeping um, the social fabric of those regions and the identity going, building on the strengths of what we've seen through the coal sector or the oil and gas sectors and giving them opportunities for the future. I've focused so far on what it is that we're trying to do and why it is that we're trying to do it. Um, I'd like to just touch now on some real milestones and progress that we've started to see. And a lot of this, um, when I first started on this, we were a small team then, maybe there was five of us working on this offshore wind farm, um, the original founders of the project. And I had just come on board because uh, we'd secured some investment from a Danish uh, super fund management company, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. Um, we've now been able to, through the positive progress we've seen, build up to a team of around 30 people, both global experts who've flown in, people have been working in offshore wind for the last 10 years, but also lots of local Victorians and Australians who've got expertise in things like the local marine environment here, so that we can ensure we're doing all the right studies to set this project up in a way that gives us a really strong benchmark moving forward for other offshore wind projects. So that's been really positive to see that growth. Uh, and I'm really glad we've got the backing of this company, um, CIP, who has ambition to invest $100 billion by 2030 into renewables. They're one of the largest renewable energy investors in the world. So it's really great to have that support. Uh, in late 2020, we saw budget commitments from both the state and the federal governments um, towards offshore wind, so at a federal level supporting a framework, which I'll touch on shortly, and at a state level, uh, what's known as an in in energy innovation program. So for new technologies that aren't in any way mature, first of its types like us, um, some policy work, which is really important. So the state government has been um, making that commitment and doing that work over the last 12 months. We saw the Renewable Energy Zone Development Plan, which, um, which gave a signal as to where we think the renewable investment needs to go and how the transmission system might work around to help bring that forward. Um, our team also established a good partnership with the Alon Power Station, Energy Australia, the owners there, knowing that there's going to be a skills mapping process that is going on. We wanted to make sure we're talking to them and also um, seeing if there's overlap with offshore winds. What can we do at a local level for the workforce working with parties like TAFE Gippsland and Federation University, who are the training institutions in the region, to make sure we're all talking around the things that we need to make this a reality and to 
really focus in on the local opportunities. Um, on the 2nd of September, that was a pretty big day for offshore wind. It's when uh, the federal government introduced its legislation, the Offshore uh, Electricity Infrastructure Bill, into the federal parliament, which would enable basically the rules of operation, how to get a licence out in the sea because it is in federal waters, um, how might we go about coexisting with other users, how are the environmental protections there and the workforce safety um, requirements. So it was really good to see that introduced. And throughout October, we had uh, public hearings. I believe it was a Senate inquiry. And it was really wonderful to see support from a range of parties for this important legislation and these reforms. And there was then a, a Senate inquiry report. And I think what's really remarkable is there was really strong bipartisan support. This is where we saw all parties come together and agree that offshore electricity infrastructure was an important thing to progress. Um, finally, I did want to just touch on the global story. So we saw some really good progress just last week, um, a project in the United States known as Vineyard Wind off the coast of Massachusetts. Uh, it officially broke ground. So that the formal start of any kind of construction and why is that significant? It's the first commercial offshore wind farm in the US. It's an 800 megawatt offshore wind farm. But if I look at the journey, um, many people started, if I look at the first offshore wind farm, which was not successful, it didn't proceed, uh, a project called Cape Wind. It was 2001 when it first applied for its environmental permit. So it has taken us 20 years to get to the point where we're seeing the first one fully go ahead. And I think that is really positive for Australia in that we've been able to do the same thing in, in perhaps, you know, we feel like we've got much more ambition to get there in, in probably half the time, let's say, but um, we'll, we'll see. But I think that moved by the US and particularly uh, the, the key representatives at the COP conference in Glasgow, really highlighting offshore wind as a priority technology for the future in energy. Uh, they've got a target of 30 gigawatts by 2030 and 100 gigawatts by 2050 to help them get to net zero. Um, the UK is the market leader in offshore wind. They've got a very ambitious target of 40 gigawatts before 2030. So um, not only the UK and the US, but Asia, so South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, all of these countries are setting targets for offshore wind, um, which really will help with accelerating the decarbonisation goals of those countries, but also the world. So this is where I say, you know, we're really excited to be progressing the first in Australia. And um, as I say, there's more coming into the, the mix, which is wonderful. We're seeing many more proposals for offshore wind around Australia. And that's what we need to get an industry going. We need more projects. And some people say to me, what can I do to help? Because, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. It won't just be done by the private sector or the government. It's really important that the community has a voice and everyday people. Um, so we have actually started a supporter list on our website because there are going to be times where this project faces hurdles and challenges. So if you do uh, support the project and this idea of offshore wind, we encourage you to go to our website at staroftheSouth.com.au to join that list. That's it for Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And stick together. Here comes the sun.
Here comes the sun, and I say it's alright. 